you know, look at how we, nature, nature has to be flexible. So we have this really weird approach to eating and exercise, you know, um, and because eating and exercise are so intricately connected with all of the stuff around weight and body and weightism and all that stuff, I don't really think it's fair to discuss them when you're talking about other types of behavior changes, because I don't think it generalizes. Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral science to life. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. And boy, oh boy, did we find our groove in this episode, Tim. <laughs> oh, that is true. Our guest, Michelle Seeger, is an award-winning lifestyle coach and sustainable behavior change researcher at the University of Michigan. For nearly three decades, she has pioneered methods to create sustainable, healthy behavior change that are being used to boost patient health, employee well-being, and gym membership retention, of all things. Oh, there we go. There we go. And we were lucky enough to talk to her about her new book, The Joy Choice, How to Finally Achieve Lasting Change in Eating and Exercise, which I have to say, Tim, is a little bit of a tangent from most of our episodes in that we we focused a lot on diet and exercise, kind of a self-helpy kind of topic, you know? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. But Kurt, you know, it wasn't that much of a tangent because we approached this through a behavioral science lens. So, okay, I mean, that's okay. my rationalization. That's true. <laughs> that's true. So very, very, very true. They're there. And regardless, it was, uh, was both fascinating and I think the insights were very applicable from this conversation where we not only talked about the psychology, as you said, the behavioral science lens behind achieving success in exercise and eating, but also Michelle provided some really some tools and some tactics to help us with that. Yeah, she sure did. And we discussed those later in the conversation. So, you know, I just want to encourage people to listen all the way through, I guess, basically. Yeah. And, and, and when you do listen all the way through, folks, if you like this episode or any of the other episodes that we've done, we would really like you to make the joy choice of going out and leaving us a review. Not because it'll only bring you joy, you know, our listeners, but it will bring Tim and myself unbounded joy if we get some Boy. good reviews. Oh my gosh, see, that's the joy choice, Tim. That isn't that what what Michelle is talking about? I think it's about losing so. reviews for behavioral grooves is the joy choice. Totally, uh, smiles all around on that one. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> smiles for sure. Smiles for sure. Okay, so uh, grab your joy connection right now of choice and listen to our conversation with Michelle Seeger. Michelle Seeger, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're excited to have you. And let's get quickly into a speed round because we need to know right up front, would you prefer to travel on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? No itinerary. Oh, love all that. Right. Yeah, right. I have a person of my own heart here. Yeah. Uh, speed round question two. Are you a coffee drinker or a tea drinker? Both. Both. I eat every other day. Oh, <laughs> wait, wait, so this minute. is, this is you, you change every other day? Yes, yes. Uh. I, I, I've developed a love for green tea. It was actually just for, I had to do it for, you know, to heal acid reflux, to be frank. Yeah. So okay. it's just part of my keeping the variety going. So we have had, <laughs> we've had guests who have said, you know, I'll do coffee in the morning and then tea in the afternoon. I don't think that we have had anybody nope. yet who has said it's a it's a every other day type piece. I like that. You're the that first. Fantastic. You're the first. That is fantastic. <laughs> okay, so uh, Michelle, is it better to be flexible or strict in our eating and exercise routines if we want to be healthier? Well, I, I the first answer is that it depends. The second answer is that for most people based on human nature uh, and the science, 
being flexible when our plans bump up against unexpected challenges is most, I, I believe, is most likely to uh, lead to sustainability when it comes to complex behaviors like healthy eating and exercise. Yeah. Excellent. We, we're going to we're going to explore gonna... that a little bit more as we get into this. Um, but the last speed round question. So understanding all of this component about driving, you know, healthier change, shouldn't it just be easy to lose weight by just changing our habits? Isn't that the easiest and best way to do this? Well, um, <laughs> no. we thought you might have a perspective yeah, on this that you yes. might want to say. Well, as you know, interestingly, I just did a Google trend term search and the term habit is among the highest it's ever been. It's almost reached their hundred, the, you know, top number. Yeah. Wow. Um, habit formation, as you know, has been based on uh, a bunch of assumptions. And while forming habits for simple, small behaviors um, that don't depend on a lot of other people and a lot of uh, conditions to be in our favor works well. And I depend on automatic thinking and decision-making for many things, but, and this is the big but, when it comes to complex multi-stage behaviors like healthy eating and exercise, for most people, the the assumptions just can't be met. The, there are yes. the criterion, and I know we're going to dive more into that. So I'll hopefully use that as a cliffhanger, uh, <laughs> well, keeping people interested to stay longer as we go through here. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we are here today talking with Michelle about her latest book, The Joy of Choice, and. We see instantly that it's endorsed by one of our favorite guests, Dan Pink, which was pretty cool to, to see a lovely Dan Pink uh, endorsement right up right up front. I want to just ask about you've combined 30 years of research on adopting healthy behaviors into this book. So why this book and why this book now? So before we go there, Tim, I just want to correct you. It's called the joy choice, not the joy of choice. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. OK, <laughs> God, man, right out of the bat. <laughs> People, it's a common, believe it or not, it's a very common thing. I, you know, which is fine. It's, you know, but I think it's, it's, I think it's really interesting. The, the again, I, we, we even with the book that. in front of me, I've, you know, I, I'm, I'm still misreading the title. I, I, my apologies to, to the no author. Worries. No worries. <laughs> why this book and why this book now? So I have always straddled research and real life through being a health coach and doing research, academic research. And, and, and also, in addition to my own academic research, I, like, I'm sure just like you both, love to read the literature and see what other people are doing across fields and where there are overlaps and where there are divergencies and to understand. So where are we right now with decision-making and behavior change? And um, my first book, No Sweat, really dove into a method I developed to help people convert or transform exercise from feeling like a chore to feeling like a gift that people want to give themselves every day. So that was the first book. Now, this book is really a more nuanced investigation and storytelling around at this moment of choice that all of a sudden, you know, gets derailed because of our, you know, dog throwing up over there or uh, an elderly parent needing help, you know, with their cell phone. I mean, there's so many things that get in the way and these things tend to do, they, they come at us and it's like, oh my gosh, I can't go to that exercise class I had planned for, or I'm at a party and nothing on my food plan is here. What am I going to do? And, but we haven't been taught how to think about those moments in strategic ways that in strategic ways that are not just based on science and the way our brain works but in ways that will inspire us to make the choice that we're really ultimately um, going to be happier with and that ultimately will enable us to stick with our behavior throughout the ebbs and flows of daily life yeah it's interesting as you talk about that that the idea that we have life that intervenes in our life, right? That that's the, uh, the idea here. And and as as um, 
Tim mentioned up front, you know, you were, it was Dan Pink kind of did a, a nice endorsement of your book and his book, you know, Regret talks about that. And I think a part of what you're trying to get here is, you know, we, we often would go to that party where none of the food choices are there. And so then what happens is we may eat uh, things that we don't want. And then there's that feeling of regret that's happening. And I think part of what you're trying to get with this book and kind of the, the methodology is saying you don't have to have that regret and you can actually make a good choice. It might not be the perfect choice, but it's a good choice. And, and that is that's the way to keep this sustained. Is that my overarching there? Absolutely. And the interesting thing about this is if we take a big step back from healthy eating and exercise, which are under the weight loss umbrella, and that's one of the reasons why this is as, you know, is as challenging as it is. But when we take a step back out of that paradigm and we look at how we parent and how we are as partners and how we work, we we don't expect perfection. We embrace, we acknowledge, we have, unless, you know, maybe there's 1% of the population that does everything almost perfectly, but the rest, the other 99% of us just can't. So in all of these other aspects of our daily life, with these things we have long-term relationships with, sustainability, if you will, we don't expect that we have to hit the bullseye every time. You know, if a dentist office calls and needs to reschedule the appointment, we don't fire them, <laughs> right? <laughs> we take it in stride. But when it comes to our eating and exercise plans, if we can't hit the bullseye, we fail. And it's such a stressful moment when we're like, oh my gosh, I can't do it. And we haven't been taught to think in an adaptive way, in a formulaic way even, that can guide us to support our brain's innate um, self-management system so that we can make a choice that keeps us on the path of lasting change. So what happened? How did we run off the rails in this domain and in other domains we adapt, we're flexible, we seem to just roll with the punches in so many other domains? Well, there's a very specific reason why. And while, you know, we had talked about before, most of my work is in the United States, but I do do some work with the World Health Organization. And I used to think in the 90s, when I started out my career, I used to think this was purely an American phenomenon, but it, it I've learned over time that it is not. And the reason why is because the value and the promotion of exercising and healthy eating in a way comes out of the research that's been done that looks at the the health benefits, the weight-related benefits that happen when you eat a certain way or when you exercise a certain way. And by its very nature, this is research has to be precise. Mm -hmm. And so what comes out of that by nature precision research we have prescriptions, right? You're yeah. in dose, but you know, you exercise according to getting your heart rate. Now this is outdated stuff, but it's still people, because of the way our belief systems work, the physiology of beliefs, people have heard for so many years, you need to exercise and sweat and get your heart rate up, you know, percent of your certain percent of your maximum heart rate, all that stuff, very prescribed dose response frameworks for thinking about it and eating. We have to eat five, you know, to nine for fruits and vegetables. And so I believe the reason why we have become so, um, I call it the dogma of the bullseye, you know, mm. we're so dogmatic about needing to be, get it perfectly right is because we've learned to value exercise and healthy eating out of a medicalized paradigm, which is great for doing, you know, research on cells and that sort of thing. But when we leave that paradigm and we enter our hectic, you know, nuanced daily life, there's, there, it, it, there's like a disconnect because while cells might be very responsive, you know, to certain doses of things, we're much more complicated than that. We have emotions. And um, so anyway, I'll stop to see if you have any um, input. I think that it, it's a really insightful um, comment there, that this idea that we, we we come from this medical precision area 
and then life, as we talked about earlier, isn't as as nice and clean cut in various different pieces. You also in the book, you also talk about this idea where you say uh, the gap between our intentions and behavior. And I quote here is not a reflection of our personal feeling failings, excuse me, unquote. And, and when you're talking about that, it, it makes me think about what you're just saying. But the idea that we tend to when we do fail, we we take that as really a, a negative impact on our identity, but also it's like, oh, gosh, I just don't have the, the self-control, the willpower, and we beat ourselves up over it in those instances, as opposed to, uh, you know, hey, I have to miss the, the dentist appointment because I have to do this with my, you know, my, 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 my aging parents, and we'll just reschedule that. But we don't do that with these other things. What what do you take from that? Well, I think it's because, so kind of building on the, the context of why it is that way, we think of exercise and healthy eating as isolated, these things we need to do, but they're not fully integrated in a very, in a holistic way into the other parts of our lives. Mm. And, and I, th- I believe the reason is also because they are very much associated with trying to lose weight, which is the specific goal. And and people get very focused on it. And it's not that there's not good reason. You know, there are some, I mean, there's so many problems with focusing on weight loss as a goal for behavior change. It's very counterintuitive. And I don't really talk about this very much in the book. Um, I talk a lot about it in my first book, but when you try to change a a behavior, like you want to eat in healthier ways, you want to add exercise into your life and it's tied to a goal that inherently means there's something wrong with you um, that embeds past failures and, 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 and future goals, which be- behavioral economics teaches us are not as motivating is the immediate reward we feel right now. <laughs> so that is one of the reasons why it is not integrated into our sense of self, because in a way it doesn't make us feel good about ourselves. So that's one of the reasons why we need to create, you know, I call it, I'm jumping ahead just to, to frame it in this conversation. I call it the joy choice. Yeah. When we make the perfect and perfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing, partly because we want our brains, we want our mindsets to, to consider these choices as something that is going to feed us, that reflects who we are, our values, and um, and, and as a way to energize ourselves and give ourselves joy so that we can continue on to the next task that is very meaningful to us, whether it's related to our work or our families or our friendships or our you know, places of worship. One of the things that you talked about in the book too, that I think ties into this is this, you brought up some research that said how we feel during exercise, not afterwards, is the biggest predictor of if we stay the course or not. And I think that ties into exactly what you're just saying here is that it's this element of integrating these, not having the goal be losing X number of pounds, but finding that joy in in eating uh, in, a, in a healthier way, in exercising in a, in a manner that is going to bring some, as you say, joy to 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 your your life. And you know, the, it's it's really interesting. You know, I study uh, the science across many different areas, and the work that I find most compelling in terms of what what is most important for creating a change in healthy lifestyles that you're likely to sustain. Sustainability has from day one has been what I focused on. So I only care about what drives sustainability, what thwarts it. And the research suggests that when it comes to things like for sure physical activity, the literature on eating is younger than the one on exercise with this, (laughs) but feeling better feeling positive from the experiences of, you know, eating a certain way, um, which could even be just, darn it, I'm taking care of myself. Like that creates a positive feeling, right? So the positivity is a very strong driver and that has to do with the neuroscience reward. So we want to do that. But the other piece is, the, and, and again, this these things have nothing to do with weight loss, right? This has to do with the way our brains feel rewarded. And the second part, which reflects some of the most important emerging science, relates to helping people value and identify with 
the choices as something that is meaningful because, or for whatever reason, because you're taking care of yourself, because you're helping yourself be more enthusiastic for the people and projects you care most about. And, and research suggests that, and, and I know from my coaching work that we, it's actually not very difficult both to help people learn to get positive feelings from these behaviors, which is really exciting, and to learn to view it in this more value-based, identity-supporting way. And that is what will help more people adapt lifestyle changes in ways they can sustain. And I'm just going to throw it out there much more than trying to form automatic habits that they don't have to think about. Well, let's go there then. Let's let's just go there. There there is a critique uh, of of habit formation in its in the, in the very broadest sense. Tell us about where you're coming from and what concerns you have with the way popular press talks about habits. Maybe sure. And you know, to to be completely honest, it's not just the popular press. I mean, the literature too. Um, I I think has some challenges that is important to talk about. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. So any behavior change strategy is based on assumptions, but assumptions with, as with anything are often invisible, right? And so we don't usually talk about, but this is the assumption. So in theory, let's talk about it. And again, I want to say I depend on automatic habits for lots of things. So I don't want to come across as being anti-habit, but you know, as someone who's been trained in public health as well as psychology to take the context into account, mm-hmm. not just the psychology of what's going on in an isolated way, and having worked with people in their real daily struggles, you know, as a, as a health coach, a self-care coach, you see how complex it is. And we already talked about these unexpected things that just kind of get thrown at us and we have to understand. So let's just talk about here is a big assumption in general in the popular press, and it might be talked about a little differently, but it's, it's, it's in the scientific literature, but it's, it's basically enough, enough similarity that it's okay to just talk about the habit loop. A lot of the books talk about a habit loop where there's three steps. There's a cue, a context cue that you, you know, I walk into the bathroom, I grab the floss, or I put my toothbrush down and I grab the floss, no thinking required. Step two is the flossing, no thinking. I just grab that floss and I floss. And then step three is some type of positive reward that, again, because of the brain, reinforces our decision-making. And, you know, the way habit formation works is the more we do it, our brain learns these associations and we don't have to think about it at all. And you can understand potentially why that would work with flossing. You're alone in the bathroom. There's no, you know, vomiting dogs for the most part or people or, uh, you know, email, you know, those types of things. There's not a lot of that's going to disrupt your, um, this automaticity that occurs between the cue and the behavior. But, and and you can also understand how a barista could learn habit formation with their tasks, right? First of all, that's the job they're getting paid for, but, you know, it's a mechanical rote thing. But let's step outside of the bathroom into our daily life where we are preparing foods. We have to go to the grocery store. We have to be prepared to get the right foods. We have to know what we're going to cook. We have to choose to cook it at the moment. Um, We have to deal potentially with pushback from our families. I mean, there's so many layers that the habit loop, which is elegant, works really well in a situation where there isn't disruption so it's habit formation is based on the assumptions that there really aren't going to be disruptions. In fact, you know, a leading habit researcher says variety is the enemy of habit. If you can't plan your habit, you know, unfailingly, it will never take hold. And that says it all. I, you know, I think she was really trying to emphasize how important it is as a, as a, um, as a criterion for forming habits, but it, it also showcases how problematic habit formation is for a complex behavior where you have to plan it and maybe drive and maybe change and maybe try to do a behavior that you don't want to do. Um, although that's a whole other conversation why we should not do that anyway. Um, <laughs> so do you see? Do you see how it just kind of 
the elegant nature of the habit loop just cannot say stay standing in the life of most of us. Now, um, before I end, and I will end soon, I want to say there are some people, and as you know from reading the book, my husband is one of them. <laughs> I call habiters and, and, and the rest of us are unhabiters and people who are habiters and who do have an exercise habit. I mean, he, his alarm goes off at 5.30 AM. He's dressed in his exercise clothes. So there is zero friction. There's zero, you know, wow. ability to yeah. deviate from his path, but he does it that with other things in his life, everything in his life. Right? <laughs> it is interesting how different people are, are that way. And I am definitely a, unhabiter um as we do but i do i do have certain habits like you said i i journal every night i i floss my teeth every night and and it has become you know habit and it automates um automatic and i don't think about it i think one of the other pieces and, and you bring this up a little bit in the book is this that when we are thinking about habits and those those types of activities at least for the vast majority of us um they don't go on um for a long extended all right, we have 38 different steps as we're doing this with different options and different uh, you know variations that we can do here and there. It just doesn't fit into a uh, something that is ever going to become a habit. It can be a routine, you can be conscious about trying to do some of these things, but this this idea that we're just going to, you know, take that conscious element out of it that executive functioning that is so important to us as being humans and just kind of say, nope, we can take that off, which we know we, it's why we do habits, right? Because our, our brains take up a lot of energy. They, they consume the vast majority of energy per weight according to anything else in our bodies. And so trying to take some of that thinking out can actually be very beneficial for us, but it can't be done in all situations. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the role of the executive function is in as we're going through and, and in this whole um, element that you're bringing forward. Yes. And I, I, I'm really glad you asked that question. And before I answer it, I just want to say, um, because habit formation has been, is, it's wildly popular. In fact, I would, I don't know if there's anything more popular than habit formation. We assume, I think that there's a lot of research to support that it leads to sustainable changes. Yeah. But actually little research support showing long-term benefits in many behaviors, not just the complex ones. So that, again, that's an assumption. We, when, you know, when um, charismatic people and smart people talk about things, it's very easy to take them in and just kind of assume, well, they know what they're talking about, but it's important for everyone, all of us, you, me, your listeners, we are all consumers of information. And the beliefs and and the uh, and the perspectives of the people delivering the behavior change information are influencing what they're telling us, and so we we need to critically understand where they're coming from. We need to understand the assumptions; otherwise, it may not be a fit. And unfortunately, consumers of behavior. Well, not your listener. I mean, your listeners are listening to this because they care about this, yeah, right? Yes. I think it's very important to just be explicit and say that when you are want to try a new strategy for behavior change, make sure you understand the beliefs and, and training that the person has had, the type of people they've worked with or done research on. Are those people like you, you know, um, or are they animals? Instead of humans. <laughs> so these are all things that I think is really important for people to ask themselves. Now, I'll, I'll shift into the executive functioning thing, which I think is just super interesting. You know, our executive functions are, have evolved to help humans pivot when they need to, problem solve, and manage long-term projects. And, you know, I, well, I don't know about you, but when I first started learning or even hearing about executive functioning, it was in two specific domains. It was in aging, like how, because it, it, as people age, our executive functions, you know, tend to decrease or worsen, you know, like other things in our lives. And people who have a condition like ADHD, are in, innately challenged in their executive functions. And that is, those are the two domains that I had always associated executive functioning with. But in fact, there is, 
I would call it emerging. It's not like new, new as of just last year, but an emerging literature that's looking at the role of our executive functions with eating um, and exercise. Now, what's really cool about this is that, or interesting, is that when you look at the science on executive functioning and eating, the directionality goes like this. In what ways do our executive functions influence our eating and weight, right? And can we change them? And, you know, there's all kinds of problems with the ways in which our, our executive functions, especially working memory, has tried to be changed to improve working memory, but anyway, um, or improve our eating choices. And then when it comes to exercising, the directionality has been traditionally the way, the incredible ways in which exercise boosts and benefits our executive functioning. So, Mm -hmm. but in the popular literature, we haven't been taught to think about the ways in which our working memory, our cognitive flexibility, and our inhibition or self-control influences our in-the-moment decision-making around eating and exercise. And that's why I wrote the book. I thought it was so interesting. It is. And it it also appeals to all of the the ways that we consume information, appeals to the way our brain is looking for sort of a black or a white, you know, solution. It is or it isn't. Does this apply to me or doesn't? You know, rather than the, the hard work of trying to figure out, to ask the questions like you're, you're bringing up. Well, th- that's an interesting study. Who was that performed on? What was the sample size? What part of the world was that in? You know, these are, it takes a lot of effort, you know, to get into that stuff. And I think that that, that's always challenging. To what degree do you think mindset plays a role? Everything. So, you know, I have, mindset has been in the forefront of, of my thinking and work since the beginning, because, you know, we know that um, and I, I, I go back and forth between referring to it as mindset and belief system, because I think there's some value to really dive into the fact that we do have beliefs about certain things. So, the, the, you know, we could say your mindset toward exercise determines whether you enjoy it or whether you keep doing it. But I wonder if it's more helpful to say your belief system about how how it should feel doesn't need to hurt to be valuable to do. That's going to influence whether you pick activities that enjoy it. So um, I think thinking about belief system is also really important. So, um, But, you know, and I'm just going to dive into a whole nother topic, which I don't talk about in the book, but I think is as important as coaching, as science, and that is branding. How strategies are branded influences how we feel about them, how we think about them. And across, you know, any area, whether it's education, work, exercise, we know that whether people come at things with an approach or an avoidance mindset, whether people feel autonomous or controlled toward it, that these things radically influence how we experience doing them. So, you know, as important as is identifying a science-based strategy that research suggests could be helpful, like flexible, like cognitive flexibility, we need to, if for, to actually have a really population level impact and we to really get people to take it up, to get uptake, we need to think in marketing ways. And so we want to brand the strategies in ways that people will feel positive about. Like, again, that I mean, duh, that's why I called it the joy choice. <laughs> you know, instead of feeling like a failure or instead of feeling, eh, it's not worth doing just that little bit. No, it's, it's, it's the perfect and perfect option that lets you do something instead of nothing. And not only, not only does it help you stay the path, it's not a perfect path, just like parenting and work, <laughs> but we stay the path. But in addition to that, when we recognize through our mindset and our beliefs that this imperfect choice that wasn't what we had hoped to do helps us be our best self, helps reinforce us taking care of ourselves, so that we can be more present with our families or we can have more energy and vitality at work. That mindset then makes us desire to do it. And that is so important, especially we're talking about lasting change is forever. So we have to have the ingredients in place and we have to look to marketing and branding to help us figure that out. Yeah. 
Michelle, I love I love how you bring that up, and it reminds me we just interviewed David Robson, who wrote The Expectation Effect, which is again all about belief systems and mindsets and and the expectation that you have about something going into it and how that impacts the actual experience of that. And so what you're talking about here fits so wonderful with that. And again, we did a deep dive on Aaliyah Crumb's milkshake study, which is, you know, the expectation on that milkshake actually changed the ghrelin, you know, hormonal response in their gut. So it, it, it was the exact same shake, but very different responses because of the expectation and taking that to what you said, the branding of this, but how we think about exercise, how we think about eating changes actually the experience that we have with either of those, yes. which I think to your point is what you're saying is, is it's really important as we go through there. You know, my approach to creating sustainable change is fundamentally grounded in changing the people's mindsets um, about it so that people want, if people don't want to do something, there's, again, there's a handful of people who will push through that disdain, you know, forever. But most of us don't have the energetic wherewithal. <laughs> yeah, and if we I know. have to create desire. And so that is a huge part of the equation. In, let's get into a little bit of, of some of the, the, the tips and tactics that you use in the book, because I think that's going to be yes. important here. And I know Tim is really getting ready to talk about music. So I, I, I maybe we can go over this. But you talk about trap and then you talk about pop um, within within the book. And so um, can you really quickly for our, our listeners kind of outline what trap is and, and the impact that trap um, and why that's important, those, that acronym, and then pop as we go. Sure. Thank you. Um, so ultimately, the book is, ho- is modeling the macro of how to support our executive functions. And working memory, you know, is this um, part of our brain that is where we hold and work with information. And most people, you know, there's different stats, but most of us can hold between like one and two things in our brain and work with it at the same time. So if I, I want to help people in the moment spontaneously improvise with their choice, their exercise or eating choice, because something unexpected arose and they have to think, well, they need to be able to call forth something that's easy to remember. And TRAP is the acronym. So TRAP reflects what I call the four primary decision disruptors. You know, again, we are talking about the point of choice when we can't do what we hope to do or plan to do. And what winds up happening is these things tend to disrupt us making an adaptive choice. And in my coaching work, this is, I've identified four primary um, decision disruptors or decision traps, temptation, the visceral pull, you know, to stay on the couch instead of go for the walk or to eat that glistening piece of chocolate cake across the room instead of following the plan. And, you know, once we learn how the brain truly works when it comes to these things, we, it gives us um, much more cognitive control. Um, so that's temptation. Rebellion is, you know, and you can see how these things can be very wrapped up with the traditional approach to exercise and eating, which is focused on weight loss and perfection. And research, you know, just pretty unequivocally shows that m- most of us rebel when we feel that our freedom of choice has been taken away. So that is a really important thing to be aware of. Accommodation is when we can all the time, not sometimes, when we all the time put our own um, eating, self-care, exercise needs behind our work, behind the needs of other people. You know, if we're at a party and a dear friend hands us something wonderful that she made and we want her to know that we appreciate her and we care about her, even though we actually feel no rebellion and no temptation, we eat it anyway, even though it's completely not what we want. We feel bad. So that's accommodation. And then the last one, which sets the stage to worsen all of the other ones is perfection. Because it, if it can't be all, there's nothing. Yeah. It's all or nothing thinking. And again, we have been socialized in ways when it comes to exercise and eating that cultivates especially rebellion and perfection. And of course, we've been socialized in society to 
for accommodation. And some people would say, and you know, I, I don't know if this is true. Some people would say that women struggle more with accommodation than men, uh, because of gender roles, but those are the four traps, decision traps. And then talk about the pop methodology for kind of, as you, you know, pausing and, and, you know, the, the, just go into that. I'll, I'll, I'll let you explain it as a me trying to kind of go in there and do it. I'll let the expert talk about it. Well, and again, branding. Yeah. So branding helps people create associations and that's, that's the type of automaticity that I'm trying to create. I'm trying to create automatic recall of a formula so that people can remember it and 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 have positive feelings to it. Who doesn't want to pop their plan, right? Yeah. So it's a metaphorical action. You can't do your plan. So instead of letting life burst your bubble, you pop it yourself. You take charge. But pop is also the acronym for the formula, the decision tool to guide our thinking in strategic ways. So we'll do something instead of nothing. And here's how it works. First, you pause I'm like the 10 millionth person in history to say that pausing before a decision is important, right? It's it's so valuable because it's what gives us a chance to respond in an adaptive way instead of react unconsciously, you know, through rebellion or whatever. Um, then once we, in that pause, we can also go, oh, I want to rebel. I see you rebellion steering me down. I'm, I'm in, 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 I, and of course you probably know Dan Siegel's work and you know, his beautiful saying, talk about awesome branding and recall, name it to tame it. So when you name your decision traps, you are actually literally using a part of your brain that is is conscious and not the, you know, reactive part. So you're taking back some of your cognitive control simply by saying and noticing, oh, I want to, I want to do all or nothing thinking perfection is, is right here right now. Then we can get rid of those distractors and be focused for the next step, which is open up your options and play. Again, the step is branded. Playing is fun. Coming up, what are the, you know, you can't do what you wanted to do. What are the alternatives here? And most of us have not been taught to think in this flexible way. So it can be challenging at heart for people at the beginning for people. But the reality is, is that once we start to learn how to slice and dicing, well, you know, you want to eat the cake. That's participating in the celebration of, you know, your neighborhood potluck. But maybe instead of the whole cake, you eat a third of it. Um, and, and maybe later that evening you eat something different for dinner. So, or, and I'm not saying that eating the full piece of cake is bad at all because we don't want to have things, we don't want to feel like we're being restricted, but once you leave the yes, no paradigm, which is all or nothing restrictive thinking, and you go to, how can I do this? How can I honor the eating and exercise plans that I have for myself, but also participate in this meaningful celebration um, or social event, then we can start to see that there are all kinds of ways we can compromise. And then the third part is pick the joy choice, the perfect and perfect option that lets you do something instead of nothing. And it doesn't matter what you pick. It doesn't matter how small it is. It's the fact that you are consciously able to interact with this challenge. Again, and, and the POP acronym was designed to support each of the three executive functions in that order. So um, it's fun uh, and easy to remember. It is. And it is fun. Uh, I love it's uh, it's sort of imbued with a, a lovely positive psychology side of, of it as well. Uh, that is really appealing to me. I also really love how you you kind of alluded to this idea that uh, eco- the economists have always assumed that we're going to easily just select the alternative that makes the most sense for us at any given time. And, and, and of course, this is where behavioral economics and behavioral sciences have really been on the rise because there's there's so many troubles but what you're providing here Michelle is a is a lovely path through the distractions and the challenges and the the real world so i i want to yeah i want to say thank you for that but we have to talk about earth wind and fire 
We, yes. <laughs> we, well, I mean, before we before we went live, uh, we we mentioned music, and you just blurted out virtually at the top of your lungs, "Earth, wind, and fire." So, okay, so why why Earth, wind, and fire? Well, you know, you use groove. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean. I, I I like all kinds of music and I have a 14 year old son who listens to, you know, the pop music and, you know, very funky. And I enjoy that too. Although some of the lyrics are like, Oh my God, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Earth, fire dancing. It's, it, it is groovy. I mean, it is, yeah. it is, that's what made me think of it. And um, just to, I, I am a walker. I used to be a, a jogger, but I really can't do that. So I walk for my exercise and cool. and I love it. I love being outside. But today I decided to do something new and I took out my Nordic track that I bought 30 years ago. <laughs> and I listened to the playlist okay. that I made for myself in the 90s. And yeah. um, so maybe that's why Earth, Wind, and I mean, not that they were from the 90s, but that playlist in, it has a lot of um, older, wonderful music. So I, maybe that's why, because I just <laughs> exercise to it. That's, I think that's cool. Did you, did you listen to music while you were writing the book? No, no, I did. I don't listen to music when I work. I, you know, it, I wrote it during COVID. I'm thinking about my first book. I can tell you, I, I do, do either of you know or Zingerman's? Have you heard of Zingerman's? Mm-hmm. It's a very famous food. Oh, it's it's a it's a set of businesses in Ann Arbor. Wonderful, but there's a very famous delicatessen coffee shop in Ann Arbor. And in the midst of the chaos and the the positivity of this place is where I would say that I do my best work. So not music. And, you know, I guess I'm plugging, I have no trouble plugging this place. They have a mail order business too. Uh, very, they are all about taking care of their employees, contributing to the community. It's a very values-based company. And that's probably why being creative in that kind of a space is is so helpful. Yeah, I think context in that can really help, right? The the idea of uh, what is the energy level within the room? What are you? What does that then convey into how you're writing? I, I do have to say, I think the book, uh, some of the writing in there is some of the best writing that we've we've seen. We get a ton of books, as you guys know, and it was just it was it was well so well written that I have a number of. Uh, underlines on, on different lines going, Oh, that's a, that's a perfectly written sentence. So, um, hopefully we'll, 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 the, the, the energy that you got from, from writing it at Zingerman's, Zingerman's, is that right? Is that, I say that right? Zinger, it's called the, the business is called Zingerman's. Yes. Yeah. There you go. So we'll, we'll find it. We'll put a link. Why not? You know, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, oh, we'll put a link. I, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Fantastic. Michelle Seeger, thank you so much for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much. It was such fun. <laughs> it was a joyous occasion for us. Too. There you go. <laughs> it was the, it was a joy choice for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Michelle, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our Perfect imperfect brains, Mr. Houlihan. Taking a quote from Michelle. Taking a quote from Michelle for the grooving intro. Look at that. When she uses anybody uses brains for any future guests, if you use brains in a in a in a a sentence, I'll probably pull that in to the grooving session. There you go. I, I yeah, it's kind of a gimme, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So perfect and perfect. Actually, I do like that though. I mean, think that just the, the concept of perfect and perfect brains, you know, I mean, we're perfectly designed for being imperfect. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, man. That just, I I just see it every day in my own life. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't need a, I don't need a reminder. Yeah. I look in the mirror and I see the imperfect Kurt. There you go. That's how it works. (laughs) All right. I think, I think there's some interesting things when you think about that, though, because it it does imply some aspects of we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be perfect. And it's one of the things that Michelle talks about, this idea that perfection can be a trap. It's part of that element, right? And so 
the the idea that our brains aren't wired that way, I think helps us maybe overcome some of that. And I think that's an important piece that 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 she she brought up. So I I, co- I couldn't agree more. Uh, we could, uh, you know, we could just start right there because this whole idea of these decision disruptors, like her her, mm-hmm. you know, her use of trap, the temptation, rebellion, accommodation, perfection, you know, the the fact that they happen you know, derail us. And, and I think that, uh, we put way too much pressure on ourselves to have this, this flawless execution of life. You know, if, if I, if I look at, uh, Google maps and it says it'll take me 11 minutes to get from here to wherever I'm going and I get in the car and it takes me 12 minutes, I'm really irritated, but there are so many things that are outside <laughs> of our control that might slow us down that wait, one wait, wait, minute. Wait, slow down, slow down. I, I just I I want to make sure that I understood that you get mad over a minute being wrong on the Google Maps estimation. I, yes. Oh, Mister Gulahan. <laughs> oh, dude, I didn't know. That, that's sad. <laughs> I get pretty wrapped up around little things like that, but but that's that's part of the the part of the problem. I think is is this crazy attention to that one minute's going to make a difference. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'm the only one, maybe all of our listeners don't have that issue. Maybe no one does. Maybe it's, maybe I'm the only one. No, but. I think probably <laughs> others do as well. I think they're, I mean, this isn't an interesting piece, right? We often get caught up in focusing in on the minutia or, or minutia oh. might not be the right term, but these yeah. things that if we just broadened our perspective and took a bigger picture viewpoint, does that minute really make a difference in our lives? And even more importantly, shouldn't we be planning to maybe have some disruptions in our lives around the time it takes? Because Lord yeah. knows if it's an 11 minute estimation, there could be the the stoplight could be extra long this time. There could be an emergency vehicle. So right. build in some leeway going back to katie milkman right and this idea that when you set out your exercise goals when when we had her on the thing and you know the the idea that people who had some flexibility in when they did it while it was harder for them to maintain that routine going forward the those that did kept it longer because they switched it up it wasn't about doing it wednesday morning at 7 a.m it was doing it sometime on Wednesday and making sure that they had that. So I think there's some really key pieces in there when we think about that, which takes me for at least where I want to go with this is, is this idea about habits, right? And I loved Michelle's take on this, this idea that habits are not the solution for most people when it comes to complex behavior of which eating and exercise are definitely complex behaviors. Well, and did you get the feel that she's kind of challenging sort of the zeitgeist around habits? Like, oh, yes. you know, I, I mean, love God, it. I mean, we love Wendy Woods and and, um, and Katie, uh, Katie and, Mil- and Katie you know, Milman. a whole yeah. bunch of those that are, you know, fantastic work, fantastic work. But Michelle's kind of saying blah 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 there's something that's that you know she she's she's a bit poo-pooing all that and well, i think she was I, more I, articulate than blah 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 but yes i i I, I, I agree with you there that that yeah. it's true i think there is a pushback and i'm welcoming that pushback it's been something that's been on my mind for a while oh. even though we brought this i mean we we utilize habits and that piece yes. in a lot of the training that we do and some of the yeah. others. And I think it's important. It's important to understand, particularly like some of like um, BJ Fogg and small habits, right? And James Clear and some of those pieces about, you know, utilizing habits for these small elements that we can reduce the cognitive load that we have. Mm-hmm. But to Michelle's point, that falls apart pretty quickly when the behavior that we're doing doesn't always have the same cue, that there are environmental factors that are there, that when it is more than just a single or maybe even dual step process of what we're doing, if there's a lot of choice within that actual element, the idea that we can have an automated response based upon a set cue, I mean, just doesn't 
really resonate with me. Because the cues change are, are, are on a, a constant change, basically. And uh, that's not to say that that, you know, I think Wendy would led the, the research on uh, establishing that roughly 40 percent of our day, our waking hours could be uh, construed as habitual. So it, it, they that can doesn't be habitual mean- and that that doesn't mean. But I think there's an element that if we're trying to drive purposeful change in our lives, that the purposeful part of that, I think, is really relevant. And yes. yeah. by setting up routines that do require cognitive energy and effort that you are much more likely to succeed in the long run to the sustainability of this that that um Michelle talks about i mean i and i go back and forth on this cuz you we've talked about this right so in my nightly routine or maybe it's my habit is i i will go in i will brush my teeth i will then floss and i have a rule that i set up for myself i go even I don't care how how tired I am, how, how quickly I want to get to bed, I will floss at least one tooth. And I took that from B.J. Fogg, this idea that I will, you know, so I have to and I can't mark my calendar unless I floss at least one between two teeth right over whatever it is. But when I do that, then I, you know, I don't just do one. I tend to do the others because I've started. I've I've now, you know, got the floss, wrapped it around my fingers, got my mouth open and doing that. And so. Very, very rarely do I ever you know, stop at one or two even. You know, I end up doing the entire mouth for the most part. And then I take my medicine and then, you know, I can make my check mark. And I keep going back and forth on that. Is is that a habit or is it a routine? Because it's not something I, I consciously think about it. It's not something that just happens rote. So, I mean, for the, you, yeah. by the, the strict definition of a habit, it isn't really fall within that. But it also isn't something that takes a lot of cognitive effort for me. It's it's very simple, but there is a F element of that that is, you know, thinking about it. So, well, I know I I think this is actually really good to talk about because we could say on one hand that the cue that is triggering this is walking into the bathroom at, mm-hmm. at night as you're preparing to go to bed. Mm-hmm. However, how you get there, when I think about, you know, uh, if, if we're to have John Barge in this, in this conversation, I say, well, what got you there? Like what, what were, what were some of the, the contextual things that led you to go to the bathroom at that time? And, and how are you entering that space? What, what are your expectations? Yeah. You know, how did you come to that? What, what if Aaliyah Crum were here? And, and we were talking about expectations. You might be like, my God, t- I am the tiredest tonight that I've been in weeks, you know, and all I want to do is just get in the sack. Yeah. And so there's all these different things that are bringing complexity to, to that simple if if we want to construe the bathroom entering the bathroom as the cue there's still a bunch of things that are influencing that i have to make a choice to enter the bathroom yeah right i mean i'm choosing to do that as opposed to laying down on my bed yeah you know so okay. it's interesting this this goes back actually the very 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 first behavioral grooves event ever oh yeah oh yeah our meetup our first meetup at at uh um, French Meadow in the Meadow back Bakery. room back in 2017. Was it 17? It was. It was the. Oh uh, it was August of that, 2017. It was later than that, wasn't it? September, it was in the fall, September, October. Anyway, it was. It was a long time ago. But we talked about this. We talked about this. Was the conversation that we led? It was habits versus routines, yeah. and we had some really interesting conversation about: Is it just this continuum where? Where, you know, where does that switch over the nomenclature of is it a habit to turning it into a routine and what are those demarcation points or is it something fundamentally different than are they two separate uh, kind of processes that go on in our brain or is it some component of, of a continuum? Anyway, I just remember that. That was fantastic. So anyway, <laughs> thinking about it for a long time and, 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 and my my leaning these days is that I am pushing much more, at least in the work that I'm doing, is to build routines, to focus mm-hmm. less on trying to establish a habit and building in sustainable routines that that you can 
build in reminders. You can have a consistent kind of element, that cue aspect that it can play a part in it, but you also build in rewards and social and and make sure that there is a process that you have put in place in order to achieve these these goals that you're setting up, the behaviors that you want to change. So is is calendar blocking one of those or calendar blocking is a piece of it. Um yeah you know, notes Journaling. and reminders around journals that, you know, we talk about it's part of what we put into brain shift as we build that out, you know, so absolutely. Yeah. Lots of that. Anyway, yeah. what else do you want to talk about? Well, uh, you know, how about uh, the dogma of the bullseye? <laughs> <laughs> how about that? Like, yeah. first of all, it's, it's just such a yummy, delicious kind of, kind of term, but wow, how we get so caught up in that. Got to hit that. Got to hit that bullseye. Well, and, and it goes back to the perfection part, but it also goes back to our conversation with Annie Duke and the archer's mindset, right? And the idea that yeah, we just that. need to focus on getting it on the target, not necessarily in the bullseye. And the more that then then we can start narrowing it down and we can start looking. Are we are we off the are we always to the right side of the target? Are we is always on the left? So you can look for biases within there and just that and kind noise of, and noise yeah. and thinking through that. And I love that concept of, yeah, we get stuck and we get frozen because oh, if I don't hit the bullseye, it's a failure. And that's hit yeah. the damn target. Who cares if it's in the well? Sometimes you got to care if it's in the well, bullseye. But, well, it, you know, for the most part, just hit the damn target and then you can you yeah. can adjust. And well, figure and out I'm what seeing, you need to do. Yeah. And I, I'm seeing in the in the the world of media, I'm, I'm you know, I'm working with a company now that that spends a lot of money on uh, TV ads and things like that. And you go, man, you put a lot of time and effort in constructing uh, 30 seconds or 60 seconds worth of media that's going to be, you know, a, a video with a storyline and and there's going to be branding associated with it. And there's got to be benefits and uh, features associated with it so that people understand what you're talking about. And it's a lot to build into a very short amount of time. And then you just test the hell out of it. You know, to, mm -hmm. to find out what what do people think before you spend millions of dollars to put it on, you know, a major network. Even then, with all that attempt to make sure that it is closer to the bullseye, not just on the target itself, you still don't know how it's going to play in a, in the real world. And uh, sometimes, you know, and uh, the leadership is really good, my company, to go, okay. We did all the right things. We actually went through the right process. It was good decision-making process, and right, which I love. And and yet our actual results weren't what we expected them to be. Yet it was still a good decision because we used the right process. We went through the right process, and that's that's important. Well, and we'll go back to Andy Duke and go. Okay, so now we take that and we go. What were the assumptions that we made up front? And we can now look and say, all right, where did that decision, what what do we need to improve our decision moving forward? And I mm -hmm. think, again, it's why why we love Annie and she brings that in. But I think Michelle kind of is talking that same thing, right? This like yes. we get stuck in this perfection mode, right? And just the last piece I talk about, I think, before we, we close up, unless you want to talk whatever you want to talk about. And Lord knows music <laughs> is probably one of those things or whatever. Your dog, who knows? Anyway, uh, but she, she, we talked about trap already, right? We talked about that temptation, rebellion, yeah. accommodation, per perfection. But she also talked about pop. And I love this because it's very simple. And it's this pause, open up for options and play and then pick the joy choice. So pause, yeah. options, and pick. So, and I think the key, and we didn't talk about this, but the key on that is just the pause part. And we've talked about this in other elements. It's the, 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 we get so caught up in just doing, doing, doing that we'd never take a step back and sometimes yeah. move from a uh, system one thinking into a system two. Even, I don't think you even have to get that deep. I think you just need to, allow that that moment or two to settle in to allow the system one to actually maybe play out a couple different alternatives that you can then make a choice from so 
Well, if, if I could actually just plug BrainShift for this, uh, this is an opportunity where it, it doesn't have to be this formal thing, like you said, to move into system two thinking, but but with the prompts that go along with the daily journaling and BrainShift, then you kind of get this a tiny little bit of reflection, t- just a tiny little bit. And just by having that little bit of reflection, I'm so I'm just going to confess I'm a user. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm I'm rewarded with just having a different prompt come up. And, you know, yesterday I got this this prompt that was like, what do you think other people are grateful for that you did? I love that prompt. And that (laughs) that totally twisted my thinking. And and it actually caused me to stop and think. Yeah. And well, that, that's a and, good thing. Well, thank you. Thank you. We we yeah. designed those in there specifically to do some of that. The, but yeah. I think the other one of the tricks that we've used tricks. I don't know if it's a trick. One of the, the tools that we've used is the concept I of like that better, two right? breaths, seven breaths. Right. This idea. And it, that, again, <laughs> I know you were like, on, where did that come from? And I said some Japanese thing and we're looking, we can't find it anyway. It's can't a good, it's it. a good tool regardless. <laughs> this idea that before we take, you know, making a decision, even like very simple ones, not ones that your life is on stake or massive, something you got to do really quick if you're playing in a sport game or anything. But if you're outside of that, you know, don't make that decision before you take two breaths. But make sure you take that decision before you take seven breaths. So you don't get stuck in kind of ruminating over all the different things that you can have, but you also pause. You take that. Yeah. So take two breaths. All right. Somebody, you know, where do you want to go to eat tonight, Tim? Okay. All right. You take two, two breaths, breaths and you've got, yeah. you're, you're giving your brain that, that moment of being able to, all right, well, I was going to say this, but man, yeah, let's think about this. Maybe this question, maybe they're asking it because they want you to suggest something that they want to go to, or maybe it's like, oh yeah, wait, I <laughs> forgot we had, you know, pasta two nights ago. And so let's not do the pasta thing again or whatever it is, but those two breaths can, the pause can make a big difference in some of those situations, particularly thing is, in, in work and other things. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible thing is I can eat pasta two nights in a row or three nights in a row or four nights in a row. It, it just, <laughs> unfortunately, it just doesn't bother me. <laughs> oh, well. Okay. Oh, anyway. All right. Well, I think that should do it for this episode. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that's great. You know, we're always so, so very appreciative of our listeners, and we hope that this episode brought you some joy. And hopefully you can take that joy and, and convert it this week to go out and find your groove. <laughs>